but <laughs> I invite you to join with me in a word of prayer, please. Lord, on this Sunday, I pray not so much for understanding, so much as faith and knowledge, that we would know you as you were revealed in the scriptures, and that we would receive you as such and love you. And I pray as the preacher this morning that you would help me to be clear, and I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, says Jesus in verse 13 of our gospel reading. And sometimes that guidance takes a long time, actually. And with the doctrine of the Trinity on Trinity Sunday, it took about 400 years for the early church to finally have a concise, clear, and true way to articulate the nature of God who exists as this divine trinity. And that wasn't easily won. There were a lot of battles and misunderstanding and fumbling around and trying to discern who is this God in the pages of the scriptures. And I need to point out that the doctrine of the trinity, the word trinity, is nowhere to be found in the Bible or in the creeds. It doesn't say trinity. If you do a Google search or software or look in a concordance, you won't see the word trinity in your Bible. And yet, from cover to cover of the scriptures, the trinity is present. You see him all over scripture, all through it. And that's helpful for us because to know God is to know the trinity. And maybe the converse is true as well. Failure to accept the trinity is to reject God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. Now, verse, or excuse me, question number 36 in our catechism of the church asks the simple question, who is God? And thankfully, it gives us a very clear and helpful answer. The answer is, God is one divine being, eternally existing, as three divine persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. And it uses the word Trinity, the name there. Now, before I dig into our text, I want to talk about the Trinity in terms that are useful to us. In other words, I want to share a couple things that I really like about the doctrine of the Trinity that are very helpful. First of all, by defining the Trinity and understanding God as three eternal persons, the word person is useful. Our God is not some transcendent deity that is distant and, and aloof and not involved. He is a personal God, and that means he can be known personally. In fact, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can be known by his people, and he delights actually to re reveal himself. We wouldn't know him as Trinity if God didn't choose to explain that to us. We would know that God exists because the, 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 cre the creation has his fingerprints all over it. We would know there is a God, but how would we know that he is three in one? How would we know that he's a personal God? How would we know that he's loving? How would we know really anything about him other than that he is a creator? So, he's a personal God. Also, the Trinity is a mystery beyond me. You know, I come into this Sunday and I think, oh, Lord, help me not fumble my words. It's so easy to accidentally say something wrong. My daughter was working at a summer camp last, last summer, and the speaker, the camp speaker that talked to the students for five days in a row, at one point said, when God created Jesus, 
or when God made Jesus, she, she, the speaker said, when God made Jesus, and it's like, whoa, red flag, you broke, you broke a major rule here. That's a heresy. And thankfully, the creed corrects us. He is begotten, not made. And Hannah, the good Anglican that she is, immediately thought of the creed and went, uh-uh, that is heresy right there, right? But the Trinity is a mystery beyond me. And I like that, actually, because if I could get God all figured out, if I could wrap my head around the Trinity, then you start to wonder, who is God? God is beyond us, and therefore there are things about him we cannot understand because we are finite, and he is not. We are limited, and he is not. And so I actually like that. Another thing I really like about the Trinity is that the Trinity as three persons is a divine community. And it's a divine community of love. The Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit, loves the Father, and vice versa, all the way around. It's this divine community of love. And what that means is that we know God to be not just God Almighty, but a loving God in His very nature and character. It also means that He didn't have to create anything. If God was only one person, then in order to be a loving God, he would have to create some object of love, the beloved, something for, or someone for him to love. But because he's three persons, there is love within the Godhead itself, this mutual love. And that means that you and I and everything that's been created sprung out of God's love. It was not a have to, it was I want to. That means you're created on purpose to be loved. And because God is love, there's a story, an anecdote, of a bully at a school making fun of a kid because he was adopted. And the kid went home upset about this and didn't know what to say in response. And his parents wisely said, well, you go back to that bully tomorrow and you tell him this. Your parents had no choice but to receive you. My parents chose me because I'm adopted. That's helpful. Because God is love, all of us were created because he's loved, not so that he could love. He chose to do it, and it shows us who he is. And then also, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in salvation, not just Jesus. The Father and the Spirit are our Savior as well. And so, the scholars refer to it as the economy of the Trinity, that word economy, talking about the specific tasks. The Father wills that the Son would come, and Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Father wills. It is because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. And then the Son delights to serve the Father's will, and also out of love for us, delights to come and lay down his life. And then the Spirit applies what Jesus has won for us. He speaks the word to your hearts and says, your sins are atoned for, Your guilt is taken away. Jesus forgives you. The Father forgives you because of what Jesus has done. So the Father wills, you could say. The Son wins. If you want to think of redemption in terms of a, I'm alliterating here. The Father wills, the Son wins, and the Spirit witnesses. All of this, and yet all three are are part of it, right? I mean, it's not just that God, the Father loves you, the Son loves you as well. And so all three are in part, are part of all, all that happens in salvation. Now, here's, the, here's a really helpful point. We don't have to understand the Trinity, but we must believe it because it's what the Scriptures reveal and it's what the Spirit is giving witness to. This is who God is. To know God is to know the Trinity. Now, analogies. 
are fun. I mean, there are worse analogies than others. There is no perfect analogy by nature of what an analogy is. It's limited, and some of them will get you into deep water. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take the lead of my former seminary dean, Bishop John Rogers, who wrote on this and said, because humans are made in the image of God, male and female, he created them in his image. To use a metaphor or an analogy from humans is a little closer than some others, like a three-leaf clover or one of those bad ones or water vapor ice. Those, not the best analogies. But take, for instance, three people that you can think of that are connected in some common thing. Um, I was thinking of the Harry Potter book series. You've got Ron, Harry, and Hermione. All three are humans, and they have that. All three have a common mission. If you don't know who Harry Potter is, uh, take your favorite three sports commentators or news anchors or people that are seen as three that often go together. They share common humanity. They share a common mission. So the three distinct personalities yet are very obvious. But that analogy is weak on the unity because they're not quite united the same way as God is. So take and flip it around and think of an individual person, and a person can be thought of as me, myself, and I, where I am the subject, me is the direct object, myself is the interplay between the two. That's very clear on the unity, but it's a little bit weak on the trinity. So take both of these analogies and hold them against one another, and you get something somewhat maybe useful. Again, the analogies are all inadequate to some extent. So with that preamble, let me get into the text and just look at what the scriptures say, okay? We're in John chapter 16, and this is on page 902. Last week for Pentecost, we were in John chapter 14, and we looked at Jesus in the upper room sharing with his disciples that he is going to the Father, and he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And I said that help has arrived, and the first part of that help arriving was knowing who God is. And so now we're talking about who God is. He goes further on in the upper room discourse into chapter 16, and he's still explaining things. And he says, it is to your advantage that I go to the Father. And that the reason that the Holy Spirit couldn't come and do his ministry until Jesus went to the Father is, remember, the Holy Spirit's work, his unique work, is to give witness to what Jesus has done. And Jesus had not completed his earthly work until he ascended to the Father. So Jesus the Son came, lived a perfect life, died for us on the cross, rose on the third day, and then ascended to the Father where he reigns at the right hand forever. The Holy Spirit then is, has the full work of Christ to give witness to. And so he says, this is actually to your advantage that I go. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will do a number of things. Jesus clearly mentions all three persons of the Trinity in this passage. This is why the lectionary picked it for Trinity Sunday. We've got Jesus speaking, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. And then in verse 18, he says, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. In one verse, you see all three persons of the Trinity right there. By the way, it's a delightful experience, I think, to read through the scriptures and try to identify the passages where the Trinity is seen. The Father creates through the Word in Genesis, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. Or in that Isaiah passage we read this morning, if you go a little further, who will, who will go for us? It's in the plural. God is speaking in the plural. Or the three beings, angels, a manifestation of the Trinity show up at an oak tree to meet with the patriarch Abraham. 
As you go through the scriptures, you see all kinds of places. Jesus' baptism. He comes up out of the water. A voice of the Father says, you're my son, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Right there is a picture of the Trinity. All three persons are very clearly on display in the scriptures. This happens in a number of places. You could, as an exercise, it's interesting to go through and look. This this section of John 16 is one of those, where we see Jesus speaking, describing the Spirit's ministry, and saying that he's taking what the Father has, and he's making it known to you. All three right here. So, if you want to consider this maybe part two of Pentecost, it's more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit giving witness. So, what Jesus says here in verse eight, I think it's eight, um, he's seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he'll do three things, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he says in uh, verse 10, um, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. At first reading, that is not super clear until you start to think about it. He will convict the world concerning sin because they don't believe in me, Jesus the Son. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it is sin to fail to recognize Jesus. And what most of us want to do is we want to self-justify. I want to say I'm a basically good person. Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm a basically good person. We hear that all the time in all sorts of contexts. And what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts your heart and he says, no, you're not. You're actually not. You've got this sin and this attitude and this behavior and this propensity You're curved in on yourself. The Holy Spirit reveals that to us. And he does it by showing us Jesus who is sinless. So uh, go back to the Isaiah passage for a minute. Isaiah has a heavenly vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, chapter 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And when he sees this picture of true holiness, what is his response? Woe is me, I am lost. I am undone, one translation says. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And then an angel goes and takes a holy tongue, uh, a, a hot coal from the altar, and touches it to his lips and says, I've atoned for your sin. I've taken your sin away. What the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us that we are sinners, and we need a Savior, and Jesus is holy. And it convicts the world that they don't believe in Jesus. That's the first start of this. Jesus died for my sin. The Holy Spirit speaks that to my heart. He says it to you. Yes, you're a sinner, but but God in Christ has dealt with that. He's paid for your sin. He's forgiven you. If you believe in him, your sins are paid for. Secondly, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Okay, again, you read that and you think, that's not obvious. What is, I don't understand what that means. Well, one of the things that happened was that the world condemned Jesus as unrighteous. The world declared him a blasphemer and said, this man deserves to die. And the crowd shouted, crucify him, rather than fall on your knees and worship him as the Son of God. They convicted him as though he was guilty, and yet he was sinless. He was righteous and received an unrighteous death. Paul in 2 Corinthians will say, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the great exchange. The one on the cross was in fact the righteous one. And the way that we know it is because on the third day, as he promised, he rose. The father vindicated Jesus by raising him and then receiving him into heaven. If he was not righteous, he would not have been received into heaven. But the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness because I, Jesus, go to the Father. In other words, I am the righteous one. And you'll see me no more, he says. So this is a conviction of the truth of what Jesus says. The man who says all these promises, who cares? But the one who says them and then they come true, you've got to listen to everything that he said. He was vindicated when he was raised and then ascended to the Father because he is the righteous one and the Father received him. And then the third thing, he will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, on Baptism Sunday, people being baptized renounce their own sin, they renounce the sinful, broken systems of the world, and then they renounce Satan, personal evil. There is a ruler of this world, a usurper who has taken the human's rightful place under God, and he wants to be God himself. And he is leading people down a path of destruction. And one of the things the Holy Spirit is doing is he is saying, you are more than a conqueror if you are in Christ. On that cross, Jesus defeated sin and Satan and the world's brokenness. He defeated it. Now, Satan is still here and doing stuff, and there are, there are fallen angels with him. And sometimes we can pull our sights down a bit and get caught up in the brokenness of the world and our own sin that's still with us. And we can just be tempted to despair. What the Holy Spirit says is, no, you might be losing individual battles, but you have already won the war. In Ephesians, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. Already, it was accomplished on that cross. You are more than a conqueror if you are in Christ. What the Holy Spirit says is, there are two teams, so to speak, and one has lost. Come on to the winning team by repenting and turning to Christ. Satan has lost. He is condemned. The accuser, as his, one of his titles, has no grounds to point his finger at you and say, ah, you're a sinner. Because you go, yeah, and it was paid for on that cross. I'm forgiven. I admit it. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken before God. And yet God declares me righteous. So Satan, you have no grounds to accuse me anymore because I'm in Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts the world concerning Satan that he's lost the war. We know how the book ends. We have hope then. For you, if you're in Christ, no matter what this world holds, you already know where you're going. It's already secure. And the Holy Spirit gives you that assurance. He encourages you. Those with God are victorious. Now, the Holy Spirit here is applying what Jesus did to reconcile us to the Father who loved us so much that he sent the Son. See how all three persons of the Godhead play a role in salvation? I like that about it. I like that about the Trinity. I like that about him. To know God is to know the Trinity. And I find that sometimes people, because this mystery is bigger than our, our limited intellect can handle, we go, ah, just give me Jesus. I, just Jesus. Well, the problem with that is God is a Trinity of persons. You're going to write off the Father and the Spirit, two eternal persons of the Godhead? No, you can't do that. If you know, if you want to know God, he has revealed himself to us as the Trinity. And therefore, we must know him as such and worship him as such. You can pray to all three, by the way. That's a, that's a question that comes up often. Can, do I only pray to the Father? Typically, we pray to the Father 
through, or in the, in the Son and through the Spirit. And yet, you can say, come Holy Spirit, which is a prayer, asking, speaking directly to the Holy Spirit. You can say, Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can pray, and Jesus said, pray, our Father who art in heaven. You can pray to all three persons, for they are all fully God, and yet he is one. A great mystery and an awesome thing. So I want to encourage you, read the word, and then invite the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. As Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Well, the Holy Spirit has come, and he's here present with us. So ask him to help you understand and know God more. For to know God is to know the Trinity. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is really above our pay grade, above our abilities. And yet, it's who you are, and you want us to know you. And so you have revealed yourself to us as the Trinity. I pray that you would help us. I pray that we would also delight in you for who you truly are. Thank you for your salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.